Uh, instead of doing that, though, I want to ask you guys to do three things for me. First, turn to Habakkuk chapter 3, okay? Uh, second, grab your bulletin, because in there, there is an outline for today. You can follow along in that. I'm going to skip at least one major chunk from there. Uh, third, grab your bulletin again and keep it turned to where the songs are. Because as we go through this, just glance over at the song list and you're going to realize how much the Spirit of God guided the song choices today in conjunction with what he has from his word this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray to begin. Lord God, we're grateful uh, every morning to be able to wake up and have a chance to worship you. Uh, we're especially grateful this morning uh, to be able to gather as a family of faith, to be able to not forsake the gathering, but to come together and meet, anticipating that you will meet with us. God, we answer your call, your, your summoning to us to come and worship. So this morning we do that. We've worshiped in song, we've worshiped in community, we've worshiped in giving. Lord, we want to worship in word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct as we seek these ancient words. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue in our series on the minor prophets. Uh, last week, Pastor Ron kicked off another minor prophet, Habakkuk. Now, did he pronounce it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Perfect. So I'm going to be good either way. Awesome. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to start this morning in the verse immediately before. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Silence. Perhaps a calm before a storm? Maybe. But what would this storm be? In chapters 1 and 2 of Habakkuk, we see a dialogue between God and the prophet Habakkuk. That we see Habakkuk's questions to God. God, why do you allow evil in the world? And God, are you really going to use evil, Babylon, are you really going to use evil to, to punish Judah? Now, God's responses in chapter 1 and chapter 2 were good. The first was this, Habakkuk, wait for me. Chapter 2, verse 3, says this vision is for a future time. It describes the end, and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. So God said, wait for me. And then he said, the righteous will live by faith. Chapter 2, verse 4, look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. So Habakkuk asks questions and God says, wait for me. The righteous will live by faith. And then he says, you know what? I will do my job and all the world will see. Chapter 2, verse 14, God says, for as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of God. Habakkuk had asked some pointed questions, questions we probably all want to ask God at some times too. God had answered, and then we have God saying, shh, be quiet, because the Lord is in his temple. 
He's requesting. He's requiring silence. But silence before what? How about this? Silence before worship. Silence before a genuine worship. See, chapter 3 of this short prophetic book is all about genuine worship. We see after the conversation with God involving questions, involving frustration, involving um, responses from God that Habakkuk did not necessarily agree with, what happens? Habakkuk is moved to worship. He's moved to worship. Now, the word worship comes from two words, worth and ship. Thus, as one commentator says, worship is a respect and service that we offer to God because we believe he is worthy of it. Is God worthy of worship? Yes. Is God worthy to be praised? Yes. Let's sing the doxology together. Not in closing, okay? But because I want us to focus on the words and what direction they are pointed. Okay? Praise God from whom all. We're going to sing that again later, and next time I want it about ten times as loud, okay? What direction were the words focused on that? Upward. Praise of God, right? Now, in your bulletin, it says I'm going to go on a rabbit trail. I'm going to skip that entire rabbit trail. It's fun. There's a bunch of Hebrew words that point towards the fact that this chapter is a song. You can go and look those up yourself. What I want to focus on, though, this morning, in fact, let's test your memory. Remember several Sundays back, uh, it was a, well, they're always great worship sets, but it was a particularly moving worship set, at least for me, and I stood up and, and I was in awe of the words of the songs that we had sung. And I, I talked about, didn't it seem like those words were a prayer? Anybody remember that? I remember that. Okay? It seemed like they were a prayer, and I was actually floored. I was amazed. I was terrified at what would happen, the thought of God actually answering the prayers of the words of those songs. Habakkuk chapter 3 is that. It's that taking place. Here we have Habakkuk, who just had this dialogue, this debate with God, who is now in awe of God, and he is singing a prayer. Habakkuk 3 is a prayer song about worship, and it is all upward-focused. Let's see what we can glean from this chapter. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. When we genuinely worship 
God. When we approach God with the right attitude, notice from our text what happens. We're in awe of God. We sang a song about that. We recognize our deep need for God. We ask for help from God. We remember and ask God to remember the past. And we ask for mercy from God. If we approach our times of worship in any other way, according to Habakkuk, we're approaching wrong. I mean, think of it. How many times have you come in on a Sunday morning or any other time where you're saying, okay, I'm going to worship God now without awe, without recognizing our deep need, without a request to remember or, or a cry for mercy and help? I mean, this is, I was writing this and I thought, God, help. Help me now. Have mercy on me now. Forgive me for all the times I've approached you in a manner other than this. I need you, Father, to help me. You know, we sang a song earlier. We stand in awe of you. I need help with that. I realize there's times we approach God with joy and thanksgiving. But even in those times, it it should be based out of an awe of what God has done. What we're seeing is a proper posture of worship. Hear it again, verse 2. This posture, I have heard all about you, Lord, and I'm filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again, as you did in years gone by, and in your anger, remember your mercy. That's a proper posture for genuine worship. Now the next section in this chapter, verses 3 through 15, they really hone us in on the focus of worship, on who we are worshiping. And Traditionally, this section is divided up into two parts. The first half describes God's great acts of the past, particularly ones done in conjunction with the Exodus. And the second half portrays God as a warrior who will bring future deliverance. Both halves state the characteristics of God in the form of a magnificent theophany. Say theophany with me. Theophany. Now say it without a lisp. Theophany. That's a big churchy word that means the appearance of God. So let's look at God's appearance in these sections, keeping in mind that as we're looking at this, this is a prayer song about genuine worship. Verse 3, the beginning part of it. It says, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, Taman was an oasis town in the mountains of Edom. We've heard about this place in, in sermons back. Now, Mount Paran was a name for Mount Sinai. You see that in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. So what's taking place in this first half of verse 3 immediately is we're being reminded of two things. First, we're being reminded of the holiness of God. Because it was on top of Mount Sinai, on top of Mount Paran, that God said this in Leviticus. For I am the Lord, I the Lord am the one who brought you up from out of the land of Egypt, that I might be your God. Therefore, you must be holy, for I am holy. So immediately, the first half of verse 3, we're reminded of the holiness of God, and that makes him worth worship. Now, secondly, we're also reminded that due to the geographical locations mentioned, 
we're reminded that God journeys with his people. Those two places, Timon and Mount Perrin, combined with the two places mentioned in verse 7, show God from the top of Mount Sinai journeying with his people into the promised land. Verse 7 says, I see the people of Kushan in distress and the nation of Midian trembling in terror. Like I said, these two places and the places mentioned in verse 3 are part of God's journey with his people. It's as if the prophet Habakkuk is saying, this God that I'm in awe of, this God that I'm in process of painting a, a theophany of, this God is on journey with you. He's leading, he's guiding, and he's worth your adoration. He's worth your praise. He's worth your worship. And if there's any question, he says, you want to know why? Let me tell you about it. Second half of verse 3. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens, and the earth is filled with his praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below, right? The earth is filled with his praise. Brilliant splendor. Verse 4 begins, his brightness was like a light. Or another translation, his coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever and ever. Amen. That's how Paul describes God. Listen to how the Apostle John describes God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. This God as light is what Habakkuk is talking about. God as brilliant light is worthy of our worship. Let's keep going. Verses 5 and 6. Pestilence marches before him. Plagues follow close behind him. When he stops, the earth shakes. When he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the everlasting mountains and levels the eternal hills. He is the eternal one. These verses talk about when God arrives. Okay, when this being that is worthy of our worship arrives, awesomeness happens. And not just momentary awesomeness. Notice the eternal nature of what's taking place. The second half of verse 6, God shatters the everlasting mountains and levels the eternal hills. He is the eternal one. Now for the Israelites who were hearing Habakkuk seeing this prayer song, they would have heard echoes of one of their own songs. Psalm chapter 102, verses 25 to 27. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth, and you made the heavens with your hands. They will perish, but you remain forever. 
They will wear out like old clothing. You will change them like a garment and discard them. But you are always the same. And you will live forever. There's an eternalness to this God that Habakkuk is describing. An eternalness that is worthy of our worship. Thus far in verses 3 through 7, we've, we've seen that the whole point of, the, of those verses is to trace the progress of this theophany as its glory moves from the peaks of Sinai down into the promised land. God has now finally arrived when we get to these verses, and he's begun some awesome deeds, starting in verse 8, of meting out some judgment on the nations, which is kind of what Habakkuk was getting at in the questions he asked God in chapters 1 and 2. Now, I told you earlier that the second half of this section portrayed God as a mighty warrior, and we're about to see this mighty warrior, which, again, makes him worthy of our worship. And I love how the prophet begins with rhetorical questions. I just like questions that you just want to answer, duh, no. So here's how he begins in 3 verse 8. God, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? We know the answer to those questions. No. The Israelites would have known the answers to those questions. Of course God was not mad at the oceans. Of course he was not mad at the seas or the rivers. So what's this verse doing? Is this alluding to God parting the Red Sea and and stopping the flow of the Jordan River so the Israelites could pass by? Could it be that in this opening bit of rhetorical questions, the prophet is saying, remember God's mighty works in the past and be in awe of that because that leads you to worship? Well, if that's what he's doing, then verses 9 and 10 could be alluding to the great flood. They say, you brandished your bow and your quiver of arrows. You split open the earth with flowing rivers. The mountains watched and trembled. Onward swept the raging waters. The mighty deep cried out, lifting its hands to the Lord. God's great works in the past being alluded to so that we would worship. If that is what's being taken place in 9 and 10, then 11, verse 11, could be referring back to the time God held the sun still during the battle that Joshua was in. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in the sky as your brilliant arrows flew and your glittering spear flashed. Could it be that the prophet, through these verses, is alluding back to God's great events to prove his worth for worship? Or is the prophet pointing us back to what God said he would do in the beginning of this prophecy? Chapter 1, verse 5. The Lord replied, after Habakkuk's complaint, Look around at the nations and look and be amazed. For I am doing something in your own day, something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. Is that what God was doing? Talking about things in the past or talking about things to come? I think it could be either. And one could make a pretty good case that it's about things to come just by looking at the next several verses Because what God's talking about is those who had been trampling are going to become the trampled. Verses 12 to 15. 
You marched across the land in anger and trampled the nations in your fury. God, you went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked and stripped their bones from head to toe. With his own weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking Israel would be easy prey. You trampled the sea with your horses, and the mighty waters piled high. Now this could be God saying, this is what I'm going to do to Babylon, who I'm bringing in to punish Judah for their wrongdoings. But don't worry, because their time will come. It could also allude back to the time when Pharaoh's armies tried to chase the Israelites across the Red Sea. The waters piled high and then crashed down on them. I think either way, it's pretty impressive that God is writing a story through the prophet Habakkuk that talks about the past or could be talking about the future. Can you see in verses 8 through 15 how this is a picture of a mighty warrior? This is a theophany of of a God who's going to come and wreak some havoc, one that is worthy of worship? So far, we've seen in verse 2 a posture for worship. And in verses 3 through 15, we've seen who we worship. Brightness. This God who goes on journey with us. This God who punishes those who are opposed to him. Now what happens next? When Habakkuk hears his own words that he's prophesying to the people. Verse 16. Habakkuk says, I trembled inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me and I shook with terror. I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. This verse and the remainder of this chapter really is the prophet showing us the results of worship. We've seen the posture. We've seen who we worship. Now we'll finish with seeing the results of worship. The first is this. The first result of genuine worship is it deepens our faith. In 3 verse 2, Habakkuk had heard of the Lord's work and was in awe. In 3 verse 16, after hearing even more of what the Lord was going to do, his awe increased to holy terror. When we see God, when we worship God, when we encounter God, my guess is that the same thing will happen to us. A holy terror, a holy awe. It struck the Apostle John as he had a vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 verse 17. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. John had fell in terror. That's awe of worship. Now Daniel in the Old Testament had the same experience. Daniel chapter 10 verse 4. On April 23rd, as I was standing on the banks of the great Tigris River, I looked up and saw a man dressed in linen clothing with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His body looked like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning, and his eyes flamed like torches. Okay, brilliant light. 
His arms and feet shone like polished bronze, and his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Only I, Daniel, saw the vision. The men with me saw nothing, but they were suddenly terrified and ran away to hide. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. Then I heard the man speak, and when I heard the sound of his voice, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. I think when we enter into genuine worship, we will be struck with holy awe, with a holy terror, when we realize that God is so much more than a warm, fuzzy grandpa figure who's always going to give us what we want. When we realize that the fear of the Lord truly is the beginning of all wisdom, all knowledge, when this happens, our faith deepens. Our faith deepens. That's the first result of genuine worship. The second result of genuine worship is this. We find true joy no matter the circumstances. Verse 17 and 18. Habakkuk says, Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, And there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. True joy no matter the circumstances. The Apostle Paul had talked about having plenty and also having very little, yet being content with whatever he had. That's Philippians 4. The psalmist talked about this same joy no matter the circumstances in Psalm 28, verse 7. And in a few sermon series back, Nehemiah told the people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8, verse 10. Genuine worship brings joy no matter the circumstances. I mean, look at verse 17 and you'll see that this is an economy in shambles. No fig blossoms, no olive crop, barren fields, cattle barns empty. Yet what does genuine worship lead to? Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Joy no matter the circumstances. So genuine worship deepens our faith. And it brings joy no matter the circumstances. Finally, genuine worship of the God who is worthy of our worship brings strength for living. Strength for living. Verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. Strength for living. Did did that verse ring any bells for you? Because it would have to the original hearers. Psalm 18 from the Hebrew songbook says this, For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? God arms me with strength, and he makes my way perfect. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, enabling me to stand on mountain heights. Strength for living. Joy, no matter the circumstances, a deeper faith, all this from truly coming before a holy and worthy God that is worthy of our worship. 
Can you imagine that entire chapter sung as a song set to music so that the people of Israel would remember who God is? Imagine worship that encompassed everything we just heard. Habakkuk had heard. Verse 2 and verse 16, I have heard all about you, Lord. Verse 16, I've trembled inside when I heard this. So he heard. Now imagine the silence. You know, that thing I first talked about. The silence we would find ourselves in when we did more than just hear of God. But the silence that would take place when we entered into genuine worship and we saw God. Habakkuk saw God. Verse 3, I see God moving across the deserts. Verse 7, I see the people of Kushan in distress because God had arrived. Habakkuk's worship moved from hearing to seeing. And I want to say for us, when we can enter into genuine worship, that will take place also. And in all of that, we may be left with no other choice but to stand in silence before a God that is worthy of our worship. So how is your worship? I've been asking myself that all week. Is my faith deepening? Do I have joy no matter the circumstances? Do I have strength for living? Have I entered into genuine worship? Something to ponder this week. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the story today. I thank you for the reminder that no matter what we feel, no matter what we're going through, if we're to come before you, we need to come before you in the proper posture. We need to come before you aware of who you are. We need to come before you looking for results that you will bring. God, I ask that you would help us. Because as verse 2 talks about, we, we need you. We can't do this without you. We ask that you would enable us to enter into genuine worship. Not just on a Sunday morning, but every moment. May we be aware of the glory of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.